I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, and will be the text that we're looking at this morning as we continue our series in the letter to the Philippians. I want to begin by uh, reflecting with you. We all, all of us, are wired in a variety of different ways in all kinds of areas of our lives. I want to think with you about one particular a way in which we may be wired. Maybe some of us are wired similarly, but, but there are, are certainly differences. And that is our tendencies when it comes to a road trip, to traveling. Uh, I am wired differently than members of my family. Uh, about three and a half years ago, you blessed me with a sabbatical. My family and I bought an old motorhome, and we embarked on a two-month road trip uh, from Edmonton all the way to Newfoundland and back. And one of the things that was not a mystery to us, but it, it, uh, it became very obvious fairly regularly, was, uh, let's say, my tendency in traveling in a road trip as compared to that of, I think, probably it'd be safe to say, everyone else in my family. I'm the kind of guy, I can relax in the morning. We didn't have a lot of deadlines. There were a few times where we had to be somewhere. But generally, our schedule was open. And so uh, we could sleep in, and, and, and I'm all for that. I can sleep in with the best of them. Well, maybe not with the best of them, but I can sleep in. I can relax. But, but for me, when you're up, okay, let's go, right? Like, let's, let's get to where we're going. Let's get on with it. And then we'll enjoy the evening, the afternoon, whatever is to come. But uh, not every member of my family is wired like me. And so they could get up and move at a slower pace. I mean, I'd be up, I'd get everything rolled up, the awning, the cords, everything, and I'm like, let's get on with it, family, let's go. And like, why? We don't have to be anywhere. And we'd be doing things like curling our hair and <laughs> lollygagging in other ways. And I'm like, let's go, let's, let's get on with it. Now, every illustration does break down at some point. And so let me be clear about this. And it's a bit painful for me to acknowledge this. And I hope this doesn't get used against me. But when it comes to uh, that tendency, our tendencies and how we travel, how we do a road trip, there's not one right way and one wrong way. I know that. I really hope that won't be used against me. But when it comes to the letter, the portion of this letter that we're looking at this morning, Paul's message to the Philippians is going to be what my message tended. Let's, let's get on with it. We have somewhere to go. We have something to do. Let's get on with it. And, and in that case, there is a right response. It is to respond in obedience, to respond to what he is urging us to. So that's what we're going to see this morning. If you were with us last Sunday... You'll remember that Paul uh, pointed us to Jesus. He, he shared the story of Jesus, this cosmic uh, perspective on the story of Jesus. Jesus, uh, God in the beginning, with God, he was God in glory. And Jesus humbled himself and became a man, the, the incarnation. Not only that, but Jesus went to the cross. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Jesus became a slave, a servant. He came and he took our place and he bore the penalty that, that you deserve, that I deserve in humility out of, out of a love for us, out of a desire to redeem us. Christ did that and then 
The Father exalted him, his name above every other name. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and for the glory of God, Jesus will be exalted. It's the great parabola, you remember that, of Scripture. Christ in glory descends in humility to the cross and then exalted again to glory. This passage this morning where we pick things up in verse 12 comes immediately on the heels of that narrative, that cosmic retelling of the story of Jesus that, that called us to, Paul in that text, called us to have the same mindset of Christ. We pick the text up at verse 12, continuing on. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I, that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I want to do five things with you this morning in our time together. Uh, first, I want to spend some time. I'm going to take a little bit of time to review some of where we've been. But I want to help you to see how the passage we're looking at today uh, fits with the section of text that concludes today. So there's a, an argument that has been going on over a number of paragraphs, and today's text concludes it. I want us to see very clearly where Paul has been coming from and how he arrives here and how this concludes things. Second, I want to unpack the, the appeal that Paul makes here of the Philippians. The thing that he's saying, let's get on with it. Third, I want to look with you at the specific application of that. What does that mean for them to get on with it? What specifically will that look like? Fourth, we'll consider how Paul wraps up this part of the letter. And then fifth, I want to think with you together, reflect with you for a few moments about how we should respond. What it is Jesus is saying to us as a church, as a community of believers this morning. So first, how this passage fits with the, within the larger section of the letter. I want to take a few minutes to remind you of some of the details we've uh, encountered so far in our study. If you've been with us from the beginning of this series, you'll recall that the letter begins with some preliminaries, some, some uh, clues actually that we see in those opening words about themes that we will encounter, that we are encountering. Paul identifies himself and his ministry companion Timothy as servants, as slaves of God. We've just seen how Christ became, he humbled himself, became a slave and so that theme that we are slaves, we would be like Christ. Paul addresses this to the church in Philippi, God's holy people, those who are redeemed by God, made holy by God. And, and not just some of them, but all of them, that was emphasized. He's speaking to the whole church. And then Paul concludes with this, uh, the, the, the gospel. He says, grace to you and peace. That is, through the grace of God, we have peace with God. Those are the opening words. And then Paul moves on. And he gives a prayer report. He tells the Philippians that he is grateful to the Lord, that he gives thanks to the Lord for them because of their partnership in the gospel. And then the second part of his prayer report, remember, was him praying that they would progress in their faith, that their love would abound more and more, their love for one another, that they, they would grow, there would be spiritual progress 
in their lives. That was his prayer report. And then he reported to them. He shared with them a bit of an update on his situation. Remember, they don't have the internet. They don't have text messages. And they, they don't know exactly what's going on in Paul's life. And th there's this close relationship. Paul planted this church. He knows many of these believers personally. He loves them. They love him. And so there's this concern. And so he shares this update. He's, he's in chains He's been chained to a Roman soldier in Rome for two years, awaiting trial before Caesar. But he tells them that even despite that, in fact, because of that, the gospel continues to advance, that he's been able to share the gospel amongst all the soldiers who have been with him. The whole palace guard household has heard that he's in chains for Christ. The gospel continues to advance. Not only that, but the other believers in Rome are emboldened, and they're proclaiming the gospel. They're proclaiming the hope of Christ. And so he's rejoicing, he tells them, despite this, this hardship, this reality of being imprisoned, not ideal, but God is working. And so he shares that. In fact, he says, not knowing for sure, expecting that he'll be released, but not knowing for sure. He says, if I die, I'm with Christ. If I, if I am released, I get to work for Christ. So either way, I win. So there's reason to rejoice. And that brings us to the end of the preliminaries. And then the section that concludes today begins in verse 27. You might recall Paul said he calls the Philippians to uh, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He speaks to their, their life, their behavior, how they're living as believers. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live in a way that is congruent with the truths of the gospel, with the truths of what Christ has accomplished in you, of who you are now through Christ. Live in a way that is congruent, in, in a manner worthy. Now that has been the issue these last number of weeks. I know this goes back to before Christmas, but the last number of weeks that we've been in this letter, Paul has been speaking to this issue. Quick reminder, Philippi is dealing with primarily two problems. One, there's internal tension, there's relational discord in the church, and externally there is some opposition that's leading to suffering. Those are realities. And into that context, Paul called them to have no fear, don't fear the opposition, and then to strive together as one, to stand as one in one spirit for the sake of the gospel. He's called them to oneness. He's called them to unity. He's called them to stand together for the gospel. That's what he's been calling them to. That was the focus over the last number of paragraphs. He, he said, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Be one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then at the beginning of the text we looked at last week, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, Jesus. And then he told that narrative of Christ humbling himself, becoming a man, and going to the cross, and then his exaltation. Have the same mindset of Christ. That's what Paul has been pointing to. That's what he's been urging of them. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He, He's been urging them, appealing to them, that they would live in a right way. That they would live in a way congruent with the gospel, reflecting the mindset of Christ. Now this morning's passage, verses 12 to 18, will conclude that part of Paul's argument in this letter. This call, urging the Philippians to unity, to oneness. I mean, we will hit that theme again moving forward, but this section 
we'll conclude here. So let's turn our attention now from how that this paragraph fits to Paul's appeal, the second thing we wanted to do, the appeal, the appeal he makes. Our text begins with the word therefore. I've said this before, it's cheesy, I know, but whenever we see therefore, we should ask what's therefore, therefore. It's connecting what's coming now with everything he's just been saying. Okay, so all that I just reviewed here, in light of all of that, therefore, now he's going to make his appeal. And here it is. This is, this is where, this is Paul's, okay, get on with it. In light of all that, get on with it. And we're going to look at what that get on with it is. Paul here, once again, appeals for harmony, for unity, for oneness. He wants them to flesh out in their life together at Philippi this unity. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, therefore, in light of all that I've called you to, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul appeals to the Philippians to obey, to respond to what he's been saying, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that is a verse that, in all honesty, causes a certain measure of distress amongst us as Christians. We, we hear this, work out your salvation, and, and we're, we're left with some questions. What, what exactly is Paul saying? Aren't we saved by grace alone? What's this work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Is Paul saying that salvation comes through grace and works? That it's Christ's performance and our performance? Is that what it means when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? We read it and we can, we can feel the sting of it in that way. And is that what's going on? And let me make a couple observations here. First, Paul is addressing this. He is speaking to women and men in the church. He is speaking to those who are believers, those who are already saved. This is an important thing. He is not writing to them about how to be saved. He is writing to them as those who are already saved. Back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul has already asserted that salvation is from God, that they're saved by God. So note that, first of all, he is not speaking about how to be saved. He's speaking to those who are saved. Secondly, this imperative to work out their salvation is a corporate imperative. Here's something we miss all day long. We need to understand this. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. It's not like everyone got a copy and went home and had their coffee and read the letter to the Philippians for their personal devotions. We get that, right? We forget it all the time. But they didn't have that. This was a letter written to them corporately, read to them corporately, and this imperative is actually a corporate imperative. The, the, the you is plural. This is all of you. Work out your salvation together as a congregation. This is, this is we tend to, in our day, read Scripture so individualistically, right? We think me and Jesus. But, but I've said before, we... we, we we can't follow Jesus faithfully in isolation from other believers. When we're saved one at a time, each one of us is called to repent and to put our trust in Jesus. That's something each one of us 
needs to do individually. That's God's saving work in our lives individually. But the moment that we are saved, we are brought in a relationship with God, but also with God's people universally, but that is to be lived out, fleshed out locally, in a local body. You cannot faithfully follow Jesus in isolation from other believers. And we miss that so much in our individualistic culture. This imperative is a corporate imperative. Here's what Gordon Fee says about this. The context makes it clear that this is not a soteriological text, that soteriological is a theological term for salvation. This isn't about salvation per se, dealing with people getting saved or saved people persevering. Rather, it is an ethical text dealing with how saved people live out their salvation in the context of the believing community and the world. We need to hear that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling is an ethical text about how saved people live in the context of a believing community and the world. Perhaps it would be helpful at this point for us just to reflect momentarily on the three tenses of salvation. You've probably heard these theological terms, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Three tenses of salvation, if you will. Justification is what happens when we put our trust in Jesus. When we repent and believe, we are justified. That is, through faith in Christ, we are forgiven. We are washed. We are cleansed. All of our sin is put on Christ, who bore it on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, we read about this great exchange. Not only does he bear our sin, but we receive his righteousness. We're clothed with it. And we are justified. We are, we are brought from darkness into light. We, we were spiritually dead. We are made alive. That is justification. That is God's saving work through Christ at the cross. Glorification is future. Glorification is what will happen when Christ returns. In, John's, uh, in 1 John, it, it speaks about how one day we will be like Christ. When Christ appears, we shall be like him. Sin will be gone. We, we will no longer face temptation. We will no longer fall down and scrape our spiritual knees. Sin will be gone. We will be glorified. And so justification is past. Glorification is future. Sanctification generally is spoken about as in the present. It is God's work in us, changing us, teaching us to be who we already are. Our identity is we are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ, forgiven, cleansed, holy, pure. And now the life of discipleship is learning to live out lives that are congruent with those realities. That's the process of sanctification. That is happening in the present. Well, Paul's desire for the Philippians is that they would get on with what he's been talking about, that he would, they would get on with obeying what he's been talking to them about to hear. Now, Paul's not with them. Paul is in Rome. He's in chains. He desperately wants to be with them to help. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where someone you know and love needs help and you are far removed and can't do anything. It, it feels kind of like you can't do anything. That's Paul's far away. He wants to be with them. I, I'm reminded of a time when I was in Ottawa and uh, staying with a friend across the border in Hull, Quebec. I was out for supper in a Chinese restaurant. And I got a phone call. It was Nathaniel. This is about seven or eight years ago. I think, I think Brennan was in grade six. And Nathaniel said, Mom's gone to pick up Calvin somewhere, and I think Brennan broke his arm. And I'm in Quebec. And I'm like, I can't do anything. 
I, I want to help. I wish I was there to help, but I can't do anything. Fortunately, we have an ER nurse two doors down, and she took care of it. It was all good. But there's that sense of, oh, I want to be there and help. That, that's Paul. Paul wants to be there, but he, he, he can't be there. But nonetheless, he encourages them in, in obedience. He says, look, as you have always obeyed, now that's not speaking about sinless perfection, but they have been obedient. They have obeyed Christ as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation. He's saying, look, you, you, you have this, this practice of obeying when I'm there, but, but also when I'm gone. So even now, that's what I want you to do. Obey. Obey what Christ calls you to do. Obey what I've been telling you about. What you've done with me there, what you've done with me not there, keep on doing it. Get on with doing that. Now, what exactly does that mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? I think we get our best clue from Paul elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that same language. Speaking to the Corinthians, he says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Uh, there, uh, he, th- th- those words are connected to his weakness, his human frailty. In other words, as they strive to obey, as they strive to work out their salvation corporately, it's not with some cocky sense of self-assurance, but with an awareness of their vulnerability with, and with a sober sense of awe before God, the God before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They know that Christ is glorious and exalted. And so they recognize who they are, their, their weakness, and they recognize what they're called to and the, the one before whom they live. And as Gordon Fee says, one does not live out the gospel casually or lightly, but as one who knows what it means to stand in awe of the living God. But that doesn't mean that we have this sense of, of failure or a lack of confidence because of what we read next. Verse 13, they're to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in, or, in order to fulfill his good purpose. For it is God who works in you. Salvation is of God. That is, we are saved, we are justified through Christ, we will be glorified by Christ, and now this process of of growth, of progress in the gospel, of transformation, is the work of God in us by his Holy Spirit, changing our desires, giving us strength, convicting us, reminding reminding us of his grace when we fail. To be sure, we're not passive, we are commanded to obey. We participate in this process of sanctification. But what we need to understand is this, and you need to hear this. There are imperatives, there are commands in Scripture that we are to obey. But all of those commands, all of those imperatives follow the indicatives of what God has done through Christ. Again, understand that this passage is not about how to be saved. It's about how saved people live. In light of what Christ has done, in light of who you are through faith in Christ... This is what God is working in you to do. Fee puts it this way, he says it well. The believer is not one who has been begrudgingly caught by God, as it were, so that obedience is basically out of fear and trembling over what might happen if one were to do otherwise. Rather, being Christ means to be converted in the true sense of that word, to have one's life invaded by God's Holy Spirit. So that not simply new behavior is now affected, but a new desire toward God that prompts such behavior in the first place. 
that our salvation means that we, our lives are invaded by the Holy Spirit who begins to transform our desires, our affections, who gives us power. And it's not this, I have to obey or else. It's, I want to obey because of what God has done. It's not earning our salvation. It is life that is congruent with the salvation that we've received as a gift. Let's turn to a third matter, and that is the specific application that Paul gives here. He wants them to get on with it. He wants them to get on with obeying, with working out their salvation. But, but specifically, what does that mean? What is it he's urging them to? He's urged them to oneness, to unity, to stand firm in one spirit, to, to strive together for the gospel, together for the gospel. These people, these believers, these women and men, are God's people in the city of Philippi. They are a community of the redeemed. They are a colony of heaven, citizens of heaven. Remember that language from earlier? They they are citizens of heaven living in Philippi. And remember this. There is internal tension. There is relational discord in the church, in the relationships between them as God's saved people. And into that, Paul gives this very specific application. He says, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. He's speaking these things to Christians. He's speaking these things to a church community. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Clearly, these behaviors were present. These behaviors were characterizing at least some were the, the life together of this church. There, there are some, at least, in this body who are not living with the mindset of Christ that we looked at last week, this looking to the interests of others, humble, sacrificial love. There's grumbling and arguing in the church at Philippi, and it's a problem. And, and it's not merely a problem because it means that there's selfish ambition. It's not merely a problem because it means that there's, there's a lack of humility. It's not merely a problem because people are looking to their own interests rather than the interests of others. It's not only a problem because there's the absence of the mindset of Christ, though all of that could be said. But what we need to understand is, is there's more going on here. Look with me at verses 14 to 16, the first part of 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Do you see? Do you see? Paul says, then you will be blameless. You might become blameless and pure. Now, Understand again, this is not about salvation. We are made pure and blameless in Christ, justified through his sin atoning death and clothed with his perfection. That, that, that has happened in Christ. He's talking now about how we live, and he's saying you might become. So you might become who you are. You might become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. This is about our sanctification, becoming who we already are, having the image of God in us, the image of Christ restored. But there's more. Do you see the purpose for this? God's purpose for them. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. See, Paul's desire, he's been saying, I want you to stand as one. I want you to be together in one spirit, together for the gospel. 
Paul has rejoiced in the letter because even in his imprisonment, the gospel is advancing. The good news, the hope that is found in Christ is widely known through, through the, the, the palace guard, through members of the household of Caesar. Uh, the gospel is advancing. In Rome, the, the believers are proclaiming the hope of the gospel with great boldness. And the Philippians are God's people in Philippi. They are citizens of heaven in Philippi. They are to live as God's people in Philippi. And if they obey, if they stop grumbling and complaining, they will grow to be blameless and pure children of God, and they will shine like stars in a warped and crooked generation in the midst of pagan lost Philippi. But as long as there's arguing and grumbling, their effectiveness to live as God's people in Philippi will be hindered. If you've been a part of a church for any length of time, probably most of us could recount stories of grumbling and arguing in the church. Part of the story here, Sunrise went through a huge, difficult split many years ago. Christine and I came about 18 months later, and we walked through a lot of years of Grumbling and arguing. There was lots of unresolved conflict. That's just part of the story, and that's not unique to this community. But the reality is, I, I remember so clearly just this sense of how can I invite someone else to come here while we're squabbling? How, how can I invite someone else into the community of God's redeemed people, holy and pure and blameless? God's people on earth. How can I invite them into this community, this, this colony of heaven on earth, when we're fighting each other? It's just this dissonance. It doesn't work. And that's Paul's issue here. Philippians, you're grumbling, you're complaining, you're, you're having this internal strife, and it's hindering you from being who you're called to be. God's people in Philippi. And if you get on with obeying, if you, if you get on with adopting the mindset of Christ, then you will shine like stars. Christ will radiate his light. You will be a city on a hill. You need to stop this. You need to obey. You need to humbly, sacrificially love one another. You need to put the interests of others ahead of your own interests. You need to get on with being God's pure and blameless children in the midst of pagan and lost Philippi where there are men and women all around them who need the hope of the gospel. Paul's ultimate concern here is evangelism. His concern is that the church will be the church for the world. That the church in Philippi will be the church for Philippi. That they will stand as one for the gospel. That's what he's saying. So get on with being who you are. Real quickly, Paul wraps up the letter in the next few verses. A bit of a surprise turn. He says, as you do this, he'll be able to boast. He says, he'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that he did not labor in vain. He did not run or labor in vain. He, he's saying, as you do this, if you do this, if you get on with this, if you... If you stop arguing and, and, and grumbling, if you, 
become pure and blameless, if you become who you were meant to be, if you live as God's people in Philippi, then, then on the day of Christ, he's, he's looking to the future and he's envisioning that he will stand before Christ with his Philippian brothers and sisters. And they will be the evidence that he didn't run or labor in vain. Now, ultimately, this isn't, this isn't the primary concern of Paul. He simply points to the joy that will be there, shared on that day as they follow Jesus faithfully, as Paul faithfully serves as an apostle, as an ambassador for Christ, as they faithfully live as God's people in Philippi. And he goes on, remember there, there are other issues, not only internal strife, but also external opposition and suffering, right? Because they are living as those who say, Jesus is Lord, in contradiction to all the people of Philippi, terribly loyal to Rome, who acclaim Caesar as Lord. And because of that, they're experiencing some opposition. They're experiencing some suffering. And, and so Paul goes on and, and says, he, he points to the Old Testament sacrificial system, and he says, even if my life is being poured out as a drink offering. A drink offering would be a, a libation, a, a cup of wine poured out before the altar. And it seems, you know, what a waste of wine. It, it's this offering. It's a sacrifice. That was part of the sacrificial system. Given for God. And so Paul says, even if my life is like a drink offering just being poured out, it's okay, I have joy because of you, because of what God is doing. And, and he, he reminds them of their own suffering. He, even if you suffer as you live as God's people in Philippi, it's okay. And he calls them, don't be frightened in any way. And he says that even if they suffer, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He points them to the fact that in Christ they are secure, come what may. Even if their lives are being poured out like his life is being poured out, still they can rejoice. They should be glad and rejoice with me. So the fifth thing I wanted to do was reflect with you on how Jesus would have us respond. I want to remind you that this is a corporate imperative. What we are called to get on with is something we, we all play a part in, but it is something corporate. And it's easy to fall prey to precisely what Paul here forbids. Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. It's easy to grumble, isn't it? It's easy to argue. It's easy to have our own agendas. And, and, and I want to own that for me, too. It's easy to grumble and complain and argue. Conflict is, conflict's hard. It's easy to get in conflict. It's easy to have relational discord. And where that pervades the church, where that's part of our life together corporately, it hinders our ability to be who we're called to be. Christ calls us to shine like the stars. And that means that, that all of us need to embrace the mindset of Christ. Sacrificially, humbly, love one another. Serve one another. Look to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ. We, we need to be transformed daily, practically, actually, into women and men who would reflect the character and the character of Christ. 
Not in order that we'd be saved. Please, don't go there. But because we are God's saved people. And he calls us corporately to be a city on a hill, to, to be God's people for Mill Woods, for where we live. And I know that we, we live in different places and we all drive home to our neighborhoods and we go to school in various schools and we go to workplaces and not all of our paths cross outside of this gathering. It's a great bonus, I think, when our lives do intersect elsewhere, but, but we gather as God's people redeemed by Christ for Christ. And we are to love one another and serve one another and care for one another so that others who do not yet know Jesus would see in us something that would be so incredibly attractive. And yet when the church is torn apart, when there's division and argument, the the advance of the gospel is hindered. And so Paul says, get on with it. Get on with being who you are. So so what does this mean for us? We live in a day and a time where there's such division over COVID, over so many things. Our world is increasingly divided. And when we allow that, I mean, we're going to have some different opinions But when we allow those things to bring division and discord in the church, we are failing to heed this imperative. This corporate imperative. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To recognize that God is at work in us to shape us to be who we are made already in Christ. The great sense of our own weakness and our need for God's grace and his spirit and a great sense of awe before the exalted one before whom we live. We're called to be who we already are in Christ. This morning, I want to point you to Christ again. A word to any of you who are with us here or online who do not know Jesus Maybe you have never repented and believed and put your trust in Jesus. And maybe, maybe part of your story is that you've, you've experienced church in some way and been hurt or been disillusioned with it. And, and where that's true, I would ask for your grace. We all stand in need of God's grace. The church stands in need of God's grace. I want to point you to Jesus, the one who gave his life for you. The Christian life isn't about getting it all figured out, sorted out on your own. It's about coming to Christ and saying, I need what I can only find in you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. And receiving it and being adopted, passing from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and and being indwelt by his spirit and embarking in a life of discipleship, which is a life of growing, progressing in our faith. Over time, becoming who we already are in Christ. And so if you haven't done that, I invite you this morning even to bow your knee before Christ and give your life to him, to surrender to him and say, Jesus, I need your grace. I need you. I need you to change me. And for those of us who are already in Christ, I want to point you to Jesus as well. The one who, for the sake of a warped and crooked generation, which includes you and me, humbled himself, 
became a man, became obedient even to death, even death on a cross, so that you and I might be made new, that we might be adopted as daughters and sons of the Heavenly Father, loved, secure, transformed, new identities, that we might be His and that we might live as His. It is that to which Paul calls the Philippians. It is to that which Christ calls us. So for the sake of his glory and for our joy, that's what we're called to get on with. By his grace, may that be true of us. Amen.